Greg Palace writing appear in the Guardian newspapers in the UK, and he also turns up on BBC television. Air America's Randy Rhodes has called Mr. Palace the top investigated journalist in America and the funniest. Noam Chomsky said about Greg, Palace upsets all the right people. His widely praised The Best Democracy Money Can Buy had a long run on the New York Times bestseller list, and now Greg Palast is back with a new book carrying the not-so-restrained title of Armed Madhouse. It's his fourth appearance on our show, his seventh appearance on KDVS, and our timing is good because he's coming to San Francisco June 6th, 7th, and 9th. Greg Palast's investigations have earned him numerous accolades, including six awards from Project Censored for reporting news the American media refuses to cover. This makes him our kind of guy. Greg Palast, welcome back to Radio Parallax. Hey, brother. Glad to be with you. Greg, we've got some catching up to do. We last spoke before the 2004 election. Two days after George W. Bush's alleged re-election, you wrote an essay titled, Carry One, based in part on a long-term investigation it was you conducted before America went to the polls. Can you tell us how you could write on TomPayne.com's website two days after Election Day that a second consecutive presidential election was tainted? Ah, uh, because I didn't wait two days to do the investigation. I do something, for those who don't know me, I do investigative reporting, which of course is illegal under Patriot Act Three in the United <laughs> States. I do it for BBC television. <laughs> If you think we were working on, on, began our investigation on November 2, we began our investigation in 1999. So we already had five years of hunting these guys down. And one of the stories just before the November 2004 election, which was the top of the nightly news BBC television, front pages of the world's papers everywhere but the United States of America, was exactly the system the Bush family was using to steal the election a second time. And we had, we were able to pull out the Republican Party computers. And you'll see this in the book Our Madhouse, uh, in, in the fourth chapter, it's called uh, The Con, Carry One. And we were able to find literally the, the, uh, the evidence of hundreds of thousands of names kept by the Republican Party. It turns out to be all black voters, except, well, about 98%, about 2% were Jewish American voters who, um, were used, uh, you know, who also have a, that stain of uh, voting Democra- Democratic. Wait, just a second. Uh, I think Dick Cheney is uh, listening, and he's not too happy about uh, this discussion. Well, it, just, you know, just take notes, Dick, and we'll discuss it later. I think that, Doug, that they're measuring us for the uh, radio uh, parallax wing at Guantanamo. we got a lot of friends at the NSA. That's fine, yeah. Yeah, so, uh, so what happened was is that the Republican Party kept the list of black and Jewish voters to challenge almost all of the black voters, on the basis of questionable addresses. What were the questionable addresses? Well, we looked at hundreds of them, and it was African-American soldiers sent abroad. So their American addresses were suspect. Now, by the way, it's not illegal if you're shivering under a Humvee in Fallujah to vote for president from your U.S. address, but it's, you're pretty far away to challenge the challenge. That was just part of the game. We also had, for those who read my old book, uh, Best Democracy Money Can Buy, you know that they, that Catherine Harris and Jeb Bush, before the 2000 election, wiped out tens of thousands of voters off the voter rolls of Florida. Michael Moore brought my story in when no one else would, uh, would bring it to the U.S. They wiped out tens of thousands of voters off the voter rolls. Black people called them felons, and their only crime was voting while black. That, the felon scrub was back with a vengeance in Florida, in Ohio, crucially, in New Mexico, in Texas, in Iowa. I mean, it was all over the place. It just spread. Um, and there were other tricks 
uh, total in total, 3.6 million votes were cast and never counted in, in the United States of America in the 2004 election. If they had been now, how does that happen? By the way, I didn't get that information dropped from a black helicopter, guys. We spent a lot of time at the U.S. Election Information Agency getting the raw data. People think you vote and you know you walk out and someone counts the ballots. Ha! Gotcha. That ain't how it works, man. I didn't know till I read your book that there's a lot of laws covering voter registration forms and how you have to do that certain ways, but very little legal protection for the actual, the actual ballot. Right. The federal law protects your registration, even though they still monkey with it. But they don't protect your vote. So, for example, the new law required, in case your name was wrongly purged from the voter rolls, as they did with, uh, in the 2000 election, if your name was purged, you get something called a provisional ballot. Wow, great, I can vote, and then they'll check my registration. Well, the law was signed by George Bush called Help America Vote Act, Doug. And that, uh, you know, as soon as George Bush tells me he's going to help us vote, I get a bit nervous. And sure enough, they require you to get the provisional ballot, but they don't require the states to count them. And in Ohio, the Secretary of State of Ohio, Ken Blackwell, who is also, by the way, the co-chairman of the Bush for re-election campaign, it seems to me a conflict of interest, um, he changed the rules at the last second in Ohio to basically throw out enough provisional ballots to give George the White House again. I didn't, until I read your book, I didn't realize that one of the things Ken Blackwell put in place was you had to go to a certain precinct to to. to to put in your professional ballot, but that might mean just another table in the same gymnasium. Right, but they didn't tell people that until after you cast your vote, they threw out your vote. You didn't know that that was happening. And guess where that happened? It didn't happen in the white suburbs. The votes were thrown out almost totally in the black urban areas. In fact, if you look at the maps in the book, and by the way, there's 50 illustrations in the book, uh, everything from the secret plans for the war in Iraq to the... uh, um, to the caging Republican Party caging list, which you're not supposed to see, to the uh, to a great recipe, Doug, for shrimp curry. I hope you caught that. <laughs> I did. Carolina. I did. We'll talk about Cahoga County, Cleveland. Yeah, Cuyahoga. So there was a so there was a map there where you see where the votes weren't counted, and you match that to the black precincts, and it's and it's a perfect lockup match. It's so deeply evil, it's beyond imagination. I mean, this is lynching by laptop. It's all done statistically. So in other words, they don't sit there and say, ah, black person, rip up that ballot. They just have the, uh, the big provisional ballot push the challenges only in the black precincts and the bad voting machines. 3.6 million ballots cast not counted. Now, how does that happen? I went out to New Mexico. Everyone's looking at Ohio, just like last time everyone looked at Florida. So I went out to New Mexico, home on the range. For a good reason. That's where they're going to steal 2008, guys. They're, they're not going back to Florida. They're not going back to Ohio. They've already got those in their pocket. They're moving on the Hispanic vote to make sure that the Hispanic votes don't get counted. That's the story. And, by the way, you might consider it as small, but it's actually big in its electoral effect, not counting the Native American vote. Very big in the West, because most elections are, are decided by 1% or 2%. you not got the Native American vote, which is Native Americans vote more for the Democratic Party than African Americans. I mean, there just ain't no Republican Indians on the on uh, the res. There, there just ain't. So I went to the reservation because something very unusual was happening, like uh, uh, Taos Precinct 13 and others. Natives were driving to voting booths and not voting. At least that's what the machine said. We had precincts in which Native Americans in reservations uh, cast a ballot for president. Only one out of ten ballots showed a mark for president. 
Now, how does that happen? Do they, uh, they can't make up their minds? So I talked to these natives, and they believe me. They said, listen, white boy, uh, we can make up our minds, but we didn't make up the voting machines. Take a look. We don't give natives uh, blankets of smallpox anymore. We just let them vote on crap old machines that their votes don't count. And, it, and I'm telling you, it's not a minor little itty-bitty point. It's literally millions of ballots just flushed down the electoral toilet. Yeah, you point and, out that some people went in, they would vote for city council, apparently, and then and have no opinion for president. Yeah, no, so someone, and there are people who drove 45 minutes, you know, you're talking a place like New Mexico, they drive 45 minutes to walk in and they don't uh, choose a president. And, but then you talk to these people, and yeah, they chose the president. Let's put it this way. There's something a little bit, here's the statistics that, uh, that uh, did it for me. Um, I used to teach statistics, and I looked at the numbers. 89% of the ballots cast and not counted in New Mexico, which supposedly George Bush won by a dinky 5,000 votes, right? Everyone looks so high. Look at New Mexico. George Bush won New Mexico by 5,000 votes. 35,000 votes thrown in the garbage can. 89% of those cast by Hispanics, Native Americans, and African Americans of New Mexico. 89%, 9 out of 10 of the junked ballots. Junk ballots meaning ballots that were tossed away because they had some wrong mark they didn't properly uh, record. And, and is this because, you know, these people are just too dumb to figure out the ballot machines? No, we just give them different ballot machines. Just like we give uh, black folk bad schools and bad hospitals, they get bad ballot machines. If the, the chance of your vote being eaten, destroyed, mangled, and lost by a voting machine, if you're African-American, is, guess what, 900% higher than if you're a white American voter. So therefore, this is Greg Powell with Our Madhouse. You're going to come to the Our Madhouse Class War Boot Camp uh, June 6th, June 7th, or June 9th in the Bay Area. Go to gregpowell.com and you'll get the info. I'm telling you this because I do want to arm you. I'm not worried about the book. It's going to be in the bestseller list, all that jazz. Ola. What I want to do is I want to kick off a discussion. My last book helped kick off the discussion that maybe just maybe American democracy wasn't as nice as Mrs. Gordon told you about in the third grade where if you raise your hand, all the hands get counted. See, because if George Bush were running the election, you know, everyone raised their hands and he'd count 60% of them, you know, not the darker kids in the classroom, right? That's how it works. That's how it works. Well, Greg, you talk about in, in New Mexico, as we're talking about that, they have a Democratic Hispanic Secretary of State, and yet uh, she didn't seem to do uh, much to... Uh, alter the, the patterns you found. Yeah, see, one interesting thing, another reason I went to New Mexico, because I want to look at how they're going to steal 08. And you have to understand, if you're waiting for the Democratic Party to help you, see, the, the governor of New Mexico is a supposed, uh, allegedly, a Hispanic Democrat, William Richardson, right? He doesn't exactly sound like you're, you're like your uh, homeboy uh, lowrider there, William <laughs> Richardson. He's not. Daddy, Daddy was a Citibank executive, and before he was governor, Bill Richardson was the partner of Henry Kissinger. So he's not, Richardson's not really a Hispanic American. He's a Kissinger American. And Kissinger Americans are quite afraid of Hispanic American and Native American and African American voters. And poor white guys, by the way. The worst vote, what's called spoilage, the loss of votes occurred in the dirt poor white county of New Mexico. Okay? And He's afraid of these people because they are Democrats, but they ain't his Democrats. That is, a guy like Bill Richardson cannot possibly win a primary if all the Hispanic votes are counted. Okay, These 
Kissinger Americans are not going to be real are not going to be elected to leadership positions in the party just like Zell Miller of Georgia who did his damn best a nominal democrat the senator from Georgia did his damn best to make sure that black votes were not counted in that state because yeah you know, it might hurt the presidential candidate of the democratic party what does he care he's concerned about his post all politics is local all politics is loco so don't expect the big party to take care of you and your civil rights no one gives you, as Martin Luther King said, no one gives you your civil rights. You, you assert them. Greg, I, I want to take a, step, a moment to, to back into Ohio because I talk to people about what happened there and in the, in the election, and I get skepticism from people like my brother-in-law, my neighbor, good Republicans, Ni- nice folks, but, you know, they just don't, they're skeptical. You published yeah. a pie chart in, in, in your book of the CNN exit polls in Ohio at 1 a.m., then corrected at 6 a.m., can you explain what this really means to correct, supposedly correct, this polling data? Well, now, Doug, come on. <laughs> if the, at 1 a.m. after the polls closed, the exit polls showed that Kerry won among uh, men by 51-49 and among women by 53-47. So obviously by the morning, a third sex <laughs> ran into the polling places and voted for George Bush. That's, that's the only logical explanation. The other explanation is that the polls were changed to match the official outcome. In other words, the channels that handle the polling company the, um, made sure that Pravda mass matched Izvestia. What they did was the exit polling figures were literally changed to conform to the official figures. Now, you use exit polling for not only so you can you know, win, your, you know, win your bets uh, with your uncle on who, should, on who won, the exit polls are also a measure to determine whether the so-called official polls are honest. That's how we determine that the, that the election in the Ukraine was stolen, because the, the exit polls, as the Republican Party here screamed, the exit polls in Ukraine don't match the official vote. They must have stolen the election. Huh? What about Ohio? And, but I know exactly. The question is, what happened to those missing votes? What, you know, why was there a difference between exit and official? And the answer was, this missing vote, the 3.6 million votes nationwide, um, a good 200,000 or so in Ohio, which put George over the top. It's not the vote that elected him. It's the unvote that elected him. And um, so in Ohio, you had provisional ballots thrown out, and you had non-count of votes. You even had, I even shown the, the chart, the effect of, of delays where um, there literally wasn't enough voting machines in the black precincts to allow people to vote. The Zimbabwe method. Everyone was so distracted in the last election with computer voting, you know, like, you know, some Lex Luthor in some, with Karl Rove in some cave is going to hit a button and change all the numbers in the, in the computer voting machines. That's the MacGuffin. That was the fake out. The computer voting machines were suspect, no question. But they didn't want you to watch the man behind the screen who was doing something much more simple. Hanging chads. Remember that from Florida? There were more hanging chads in this election. You hang your chad, you lose your vote. Where were the where were the the chads hung? Golly gee, just look at the maps, look at the numbers. It's all in African American districts. See, here's the thing: we have a, a lot of people have a gut feeling that the election was shoplifted. What I want to do is give people the numbers, the stories, the pictures, and and this is this is what is called hard journalism. It's also my 
best journalism uh, to date, I think, and my worst jokes, absolutely. <laughs> We've got to talk about Iraq in a minute. Before we leave the subject of election 2004, I just wanted to note that in, in Mark Crispin Miller's book, he showed a chart of every single precinct in Cleveland showing more votes cast than registered voters. Now, with your background in statistics, can you, can you explain any way that's humanly possible for my Republican friends? I show you have a map in the book of, the, of, of ghost votes of, of uh, Albuquerque. Right. In the Hispanic Democratic areas, there were less votes for president than voters. Okay? Weird enough, right? You hear the weird music going. But then you move out to the suburbs where the Georgia O'Keeffe landscapes make the real estate very, very expensive and very, very white. And in those areas, there were more votes for president than voters. And those are the Bush precincts, right? We're speaking with author Greg Pallast, investigative journalist par excellence, about his most recent book, Armed Madhouse. Greg, let's talk about the war in Iraq. Uh, I think that uh, you, on page 97 you have a chart of Plan A and Plan B. It's like nothing I've seen anywhere else. Quite, oh, yeah. a, quite remarkable. Tell us about uh, the two competing plans that existed for a war in Iraq. Well, let's start with your idea that you ain't seen it nowhere else. Okay, once again, if you were watching BBC television, you would know Greg Palace is a guy that you know, gets on the air like Sam Donaldson or you know, uh, Dan Rather, whatever, and, and gives you the news. In the United States, you turn on the TV, and they, keep, and they keep you from getting the news. But now you can get it uh, here. And so, yes, you saw what I showed my BBC viewers. You know, the, the nuts who thought that George Bush had a secret plan to, to control the oil of Iraq before we invaded were wrong, because there were two plans, and I show you both. One plan was created by the neocons in Washington, and another plan was created out of Houston by the James Baker clan, the, that is, Big Oil. And um, they actually, you know, if, and by the way, the Big Oil plan was done in coordination with the Council of Foreign Relations out of New York, and Ken Lay was part of the process. And, you know, this is like some, you know, for those who have this, like, weird fantasy, the Council on Foreign Relations, Big Oil, Ken Lay, um, and, and Dick Cheney all in some type of secret conspiracy. Well, actually, here's the documentation. I mean, it's so <laughs> weird. I say, I don't even want to report this, but it's true. And, in fact, I, got, uh, I went to Houston and got the, you know, the people uh, that, that you know, drew up the plans. Once we got it, and once we uh, got our hands on the stuff you're not supposed to see, a lot of them really wanted to explain what they were up to, you know, um, though not all of them realized that I had my tape recorder on when, when we were discussing it. Yeah, that's another thing that's not done in the United States. I do undercover reporting, and that's very, very important. You're not going to get the stories when, when you're embedded. You have to be looking under the covers, not right. just getting in bed with right. these guys. Okay? So the second plan was big oil. And the weird thing is, I know a lot of people out there listening think that we went into Iraq to get their oil. You're wrong. We went into Iraq to make sure we didn't get the oil. Anyone who thinks that the oil companies, this is one thing I learned, it was, and it was like a lightning flash as soon as I saw the information, these documents. Big oil doesn't want oil. They want money. The less oil, the higher the price, the more money. Bush walked into office with $18 barrel oil. It's over 70 bucks a barrel. Mission accomplished. Mission accomplished. And if you look at the documents, you see what their mission was. Big oil's mission was to create a government in Iraq, which, and it says that, and create a state oil company, which would have profit-sharing agreements, no bid, just lock up deals with big oil, Chevron, Shell, etc. And this would, quote, enhance 
the Iraqi government's relationship with OPEC. In other words, the idea was to turn Iraq into another colony of Saudi Arabia and the oil cartel, because Saddam Hussein was jerking the markets up and down. Forget the stuff about the euro. I mean, I've checked out these things, too. George Bush was pushing the euro, not Saddam. George Bush. He's trying to kill the dollar. That's another story in there. In, in the chapter of the network. Yeah, yeah I want to talk to uh, that I didn't realize till I looked at your, your chart that uh, some of the screwy goings on in Iraq can be explained by the fact that there are two competing uh, plans, That's the right. oil company's plan and, and, and the neocons plan. But originally, both groups agreed on one thing, that they had to go invade Iraq and get rid of Saddam Hussein. For different but, reasons, right. But, but, they, but now, now, that they're in, now that we're in there in control, it just seems that the plan A, the oil company's plan, has shunted aside what the neocons want to do. Right. The neocons, by the way, I have a chapter in there, uh, uh, Wolfowitz Damerung, Twilight of the Neocon Gods. Uh, basically, Wolfowitz got his butt kicked, and that's why he's over at the World Bank. Now, many of you think being made president of the World Bank is a promotion, but not in Bush world. These are testosterone-driven, you know, macho guys who are not afraid to move toy tanks around a map in the, in the war room at the Pentagon. You know, not that they would ever, ever volunteer to actually sit in the Humvee in Fallujah, but, uh, you know, but, you know, th these are, these are Tinker Toy Napoleons, and to be, and Wolfowitz was exiled because he messed, didn't, he messed with big oil. See, he, he had the, the neocon plan was literally to sell off everything in Iraq, including the oil fields. Now, everything was sold off in Iraq, the banks, the bridges, the water companies, uh, electric companies, uh, state-owned systems, which is just about everything. Just 100 orders issued by Jerry Bremer, who's, by the way, only single qualification for being our viceroy in Iraq is that he was the managing director of Kissinger and Associates. That, that's his total, uh, that was his total experience, you know, to be our, uh, the, the chosen president of Iraq. Right. Now, so they sold off everything but the oil fields because big oil says, you don't sell off oil fields. We control oil fields because we need Iraq to be a part of OPEC. And that means that nominally you let the Iraqis pretend that they own the field. We control the field, and that means that production is suppressed and the price of oil stays higher. They enhance their relationship with OPEC is the phrase that they use, and that means no expansion of, uh, of oil production in Iraq. And if you think that they're concerned that Iraq doesn't have much oil production, these guys love it. Exxon Mobil, one of the chapters is called Trillion Dollar Babies because Exxon Mobil, one single company represented by Jim Baker, right? That single company has seen the value of its reserves rise since the war started by almost exactly $1 trillion. $1 trillion, one company. There it is. The James Baker Institute was, uh, was instrumental, you mentioned, in Plan A, the plan of the oil people. Can you talk a little bit about Mr. Baker and the events in Iraq and his representation of the Saudis? James Baker, okay, if you're wondering who really runs things, I know we look at, at Cheney, he has big power. By the way, one of the most interesting things I found, Doug, is that there's a lot of discussion about Jim Baker's power, Dick Cheney's power, Rumsfeld, Wolfowitz, uh, you know, the oil boys. Never once in all the investigations over five years on the rack leading up and through the war, did, was I able to find any instance in which George Bush had anything whatsoever to do with the policy in Iraq or was involved in any of the discussions at all? It's like he was given, you know, like this week's word, and he'd go out and make his statement. The only thing he did was, you know, he got on, 
on te- television and told the Iraqi people, I want to speak to the Iraqi people, even though, you know, um, they speak Arabic, because, you know, Cheney didn't tell them that. I want to speak to the Iraqi people. He said, do not destroy oil wells. That's a quote. Let's remember that from his March 17, 2003 speech. And that's very important for understanding the whole thing. It's about control of the oil. It's not about getting the oil. So they didn't screw up, guys. It was mission accomplished, mission accomplished. And George Bush may be unpopular now, but you know what? They're laughing at you on that one. They got through the 2004 election. They got themselves a war. You can't have a war president without a war, and they've got it. You know, your, your book talks a lot about following the money. There was a, one small section I just, uh, we had to mention because I just, I was, I was amazed. I talked about the Virginia-class submarines. They were designed to hunt the old Soviet subs at $1.5 billion apiece. George W. Bush ordered 36 of them despite the collapse of the USSR during his father's administration. We, the taxpayers, are going to pay for those uh, submarine retrofits for the war on terror, the, the, the contractors are now telling us. And you have a diagram showing how we're going to convert torpedoes to landing craft for nine commandos. The contractors sold these to the Pentagon for use in landlocked Afghanistan. Yes, well... <laughs> you can't make this up. You got, you got, obviously you have a problem with this. I, I actually <laughs> do like the fact that when we... Ha- I like having billions spent on useless war machines because it's, it's, at least it's safer, right? But you have to understand, if you look in the book, you actually see this, this diagram. I know some people actually think I, like, made up this little cartoon. I got this from the Defense Department. I can't tell you how difficult it was to get a copy of this. Uh, but finally, the Defense Department gave me their, their diagram of Marines in a Tube. They got this gigantic submarine, you know, you know, bigger than, you know, it's like the size of the Empire State Building on its side, right? And to hunt the Soviets, and the Soviets ain't there anymore, so what do they do with it? They've literally they got these monster giant torpedoes, these, like, nuclear-tipped torpedoes that they used to have. And so now they, they hollow out the torpedoes, and they put nine Marines inside, CBs, and they shoot them. The idea is to shoot them onto the beach to fight the bad guys. So Because uh, um, Lockheed Martin, which is one of the contractors, and I said, well, you know, this is for the war on terror. You know, because there's no Soviet, you know, they can't use, can't use Soviet, uh, can't hunt the Soviets. So it's for the war on terror. So that you stick Marines in a tube and you shoot them on the beach. And now they've raised the price of this thing to $2.4 billion a piece for this um, Marine uh, torpedo injector. And, you know, this is what this is what they're uh, spending your money on, and that's the other story. Where are they getting the money? That's the whole story of the oil that continues. That's why the book is about the class war. In fact, have to understand it covers a lot of territory, which is why it has the longest subtitle in publishing history. It's actually called Our Madhouse. Who's afraid of Osama Wolf? China floats, Bush sinks. The, the scheme to steal 2008. No child behind left and other dispatches from the front lines of the class war. So it even has, it, and I see, the reason I mention all this, you cannot split no child behind left, which is the more appropriate way of discussing our president's educational policy, from Marines in a tube, because you got to, after you flush the kids out of the system, you got to stick them in that torpedo tube, man. And then that gets you to the oil. That gets you to the first chapter, Who's Afraid of Osama Wolf, which is, you know, the fear that they're using to create. Now, there's one of the things that you notice when I talk about the elections, it's a lot about data banks and lists, caging lists, scrub lists, um, provisional ballot lists, etc. 
So to pull that stuff off, they need gigantic database lists. And guess what? What are we doing in the war on terror? What is all this snooping all about? You know, to creating massive databases. What is the purpose? To get after the bad guys? Or maybe they have something in mind for our elections. Okay? So you have to put it. It's not just a... Uh, my last book was kind of a collection of my investigative reports, Best Democracy, Money Can Buy. The new book is really one coordinated overview on how it all interlocks. And for, um, you know, I know I'm going to be called a conspiracy nut, and it's going to get a, you know, it's going to get a big laugh from the conspirators. Well, Greg, uh, we're running short on time, but, but I wanted to, to bring up one of the best quotes I saw in your book, which I had not seen elsewhere. You quoted Robert Oakley of the Bush transition team saying, the only major criticism I have of Clinton is the obsession with Osama. You just talked just real briefly about Osama and the other bin Ladens. Well, open the book. You'll see for yourself the FBI document, the 199I uh, national security document that BBC obtained from inside the files of national security agency in which the Bush administration killed the investigation of bin Laden family before the September 11th attack. Now, that doesn't mean that Bush was involved in the attack. It does mean that the intelligence agencies didn't see it coming because they were told to shut their eyes. And that's one of the unpolite things that are in the book. You know, I'm not going to tell you what it means. You get to look at the document and make up your own mind. And plus, you get a, uh, by the way, do note that there is a great recipe for shrimp curry in the book <laughs> as well. There really is. So I hope to see you. Are you going to be at uh, June 6th in San Francisco at the Roxy Theater, June 7th for Project Censored, June 9th for Working Assets out in the Bay Area. I really want to see people there, especially teachers should read the No Childs Behind Left section about high-stakes testing. There will be a test there. I will be taking attendance. <laughs> and um, and I'm Doug, I'd really love to see you there. Greg, I hope I hope to make it. Uh, we signed down in Berkeley uh, 18 months ago, I think it was. Um, we want to get last... Last time, plug the book, Armed Madhouse. And for more information, you can go to www.gregpalast.com. And uh, final addendum, Eileen Proctor just sent me a mailing today, uh, today quoting uh, you comparing Ken Lay to Al Capone. So we hope maybe you can do a post-mortem uh, on the Enron uh, trial once the dust settles. Yes, a post-mortem on America once the Enron trial <laughs> comes to a conclusion. This is Greg Pallast reporting for Parallax Radio, your weapon of mass instruction in Davis. Always a pleasure, Greg. Talk to you soon. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax on KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Let's take a short break.